welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. Welcome to episode 21 of the Brain Tools Podcast. We have a phenomenal episode for you today. We say that every week, but actually this week as well. If you've ever wondered why you buy what you buy, then this is absolutely the episode for you. We are going to be covering consumer neuroscience and neuromarketing across the next two episodes. So that brings me to today. Today, what actually is the field of consumer neuroscience? Why do you buy what you buy? And making sure that you actually buy things that are useful for you, not things that are projected to be useful for you. And I do have a resident marketer himself, neuromarketer as well, which is Sam, my co-host. Samuel, how are you? I, I'm well, my friend, and I feel uneasy hearing that because it definitely seems to have like this ethical component of the idea of neuromarketing. Like, I feel skeevy myself, personally, right? Well, you just know so much that's um, going in the brain, right? So people get quite scared of it, which is something that I we're going to speak about today. But you've got the knowledge, my friend. It's something, we're gonna, it's something we are going to speak about because there's that component of manipulation. And people always wonder when you buy things you don't need particularly, like why? Why does that happen? Why do you fall for certain ads? Why do you buy things? And what compels you to take uh, your cart out or click add to cart? So this episode is uh, for all those people who've bought something we've regretted later, <laughs> which is probably absolutely remorse. <laughs> all of us that buys remorse or perhaps the shopaholic who splurges at every sale or one of you who buys every time you, you view an Instagram ad or ad online. So we're going to break down a little bit about uh, how that happens. And there's a reason we're talking about this now. Absolutely. And like when you think about like all the Instagram ads we receive, I swear I've seen the same trimmer for the past six months. And I don't know what Instagram is trying to tell me, but it keeps, <laughs> keeps coming around to me. Is this the manscaping one? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what have I done wrong? But <laughs> to your point. Don't look at his Google history. Don't oh, look at his history. Don't. But to your point, Sam, that, that the, the whole idea of that, you know, the idea of the person that buys, I think it's super relevant, right? Because we talk about the big tech firms mm -hmm. at the moment, quote unquote, having too much power. And that's the great debate that's going on in the US, great debate that's going well globally. What happened in Australia recently as well? Facebook, Google, um, you know, Apple, Amazon, they're all under the microscope because of the way that they use data, but also the way in which they predict human behavior and human purchasing behavior through obviously, um, you know, neuromarketing and, and big data, which again is, as we said, a massive concern for a lot of people, but also a bit of a fascinating one to look at. Definitely fascinating, but definitely also a concern, especially to those who don't understand or can't see those hidden ways that, that our, our, buying decisions and the way we process information uh, is being contorted because the reality is lots of marketers around the world, they're getting smarter. So more market marketers are using psychology and the insights you referred to um, from big data, but also insights from neuroscience to get us to buy. They're really, really digging down into the psyche, into why we buy and understanding that neurobiological process. And especially with more data accumulation at a mass scale, 
it, it makes it really easy for these marketers to begin to profile us um, from what's called a psychographic perspective. And that makes marketing a lot easier because they're able to tailor messages, content, ads, whether that be on Instagram, Facebook, Google, YouTube, wherever you are, directly to your desires and what you want, what you're searching for, your beliefs, what your search history says, what your YouTube history says, what you've been clicking, and even conversations you have between friends. And that level of targeting, as I'll touch on a little bit later, is a reason why so many ads uh, these days feel uh, like like they're directed to. They feel like they're directed right to, um, and that that kind of leaves us open to to being you know emotionally moved or persuaded in ways that perhaps we didn't want to. It's totally shifted the way people think about you know demand and and buying. Exactly. Absolutely, and I think you know we we speak about you know the the economist Adam Adam Smith, right? And you know Wealth of Nations, you know well renowned economics book, but we talk about supply demand and we talk about economic economics usually looking at rational behavior. But normally we've just said humans are irrational, but we've never really looked at the supply side, like who is actually supplying the stuff. And suppliers now, people that are getting you to buy these products, are now able to create artificial demand. They are making you stuff that you don't realize you want and you might not want, but you are actually therefore convinced to buy them through repeated exposure and through the targeting that Sam said. And I think I'm reminded of a quote by our great mate, who we don't know, Naval, where he says, there are no get-rich-quick schemes. That's just someone else trying to get rich off you. And I think this might seem really cynical, but it's more practical to say it's within a company's self-interest, whether their product is good or whether a product is useful, to make the problem they solve your problem. And we want to dive into that today to understand how do companies actually go about doing that? Because A, it's really fascinating, but B, you obviously want to make sure you protect yourself so that you are making more rational decisions about the usefulness of what you buy. And I think, Sam, that starts off first by understanding what actually is consumer neuroscience and neuromarketing. Mm, uh, well, absolutely. So you don't get uh, pitched down the rabbit hole. So what is consumer neuroscience? What is consumer yeah, I know, right? So we love these names, don't we? There's consumer psychology, there's behavioral economics, Big there's words. stuff. Yeah. Basically, the long and short, oh. right? They're pretty interchangeable. But consumer neuroscience and neuromarketing is basically when you involve measuring physiological and neural signals to gain insight into consumer behavior. So as you said earlier on, we can get all this data, this psychographic data, but we don't actually know what's going on in the brain. What we do is we predict based on those data points what is happening in the brain based on the behavior that people exhibit. But what we are looking to do now and what's happened since 2002 when we actually looked at neuromarketing is now actually looking what happens in the brain and then being more uh, emergent. What happens in the brain leads to the behavior. So, for example, when I see this ad, what happens in the brain? And what's really, really interesting is traditionally as a marketer, and you might be able to comment on this more, we use a lot of surveys, a lot of customer surveys, a lot of profiling. Mm, And what becomes really interesting is research, and this is no surprise, shows that surveys can be really inaccurate because we aren't great at telling the truth. The more that we actually think about our answers, the less true they actually end up becoming. So it becomes a bit of an issue. And that was that was lightning and thunder. Yes, I know. <laughs> oh, wow. <well. laughs> that's going to make for some great background. <laughs> but I, I think that's, does that make sort of make sense so far, just in terms of the distinction? Yeah, yeah. I probably get what you're saying with that distinction. Yeah, and I think then I think what becomes really important to understand then is like, what does that actually look like when you've got quote unquote a neuromarketer? Because there's so many companies out there that say, oh, we're neuromarketers, we're going to help you understand and improve your marketing needs. But I think it's really important to distinguish what happens in this. And there's different tools to measure two things, which is neural activity and physiological activity. So for example, with neural activity, we've got things called fMRIs and EEGs. Basically what they are is tools 
uh, to actually measure what happens in the brain. But then you've got physiological activity or biometrics, things like eye tracking, right, which I think is fascinating, like measuring your attention via the eye's fixation and the arousal that's caused by pupil dilation, you know, your emotional response. When someone sees an ad and we say we want to elicit fear in them, does their heart rate increase? Does their respiration rate increase? What's their skin conductivity? And what's really, really clear is it does come down to a degree to attention. And because it's obviously within a marketer's role to try and direct things to said attention. And I think that becomes really, really interesting, especially when you look at what the impact is on the individual and what the campaigns would look like. How dramatic was that effect of the lightning? I think that's a really nice touch and uh, I might have to start using that in all of our I said fear, right? And that probably came from uh, lightning, not great. Yeah. (laughs) Perfectly timed running in the background. Uh, The context behind understanding that really great explanation of consumer behavior and, and consumer neuroscience and neuromarketing is to get at this core question, which a lot of people have. And it's why do we fall for certain marketing and not us? Why do certain ads compel us to click and buy, but not other ads? And so there are a couple of major factors that I've extracted from some various meta-analysis um, and lots of papers I've passed through um, that I want to articulate to, to you so you can understand how these factors impact the way an ad impacts you and how marketing impacts you too, and how marketers know and use these uh, to persuade you, to sway you, to motivate you to take action and, and buy that that new product that you didn't think you wanted at all, but as a result of these things, perhaps you do. So I'm going to give you some factors. Ready. These factors are going to be very interesting, particularly because you've actually done it, right? Like you've applied a lot of these things in your work, which I think is the more fascinating part to be honest. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a bit of a gulf between theory and application. I can say that now it's, it takes quite a lot of creativity, but Regardless, uh, I've seen a lot of these come into play and a lot of people would have experienced those. So number one factor is personal relevance. um, And that's how relevant the brain thinks a piece of information is to it and its own survival. And an example for this is if you are uh, a female and you see ads for men's skincare products, it doesn't seem very personally relevant to you. So you're likely to overlook those. Um, Similarly, for any message, the more it relates to someone and it seems personally relevant, the more the brain is going to latch onto that information. And I'll cover a little bit more uh, about why just further down the track. The second factor is personal context. And the way to frame this is, is it for you right Mm. now? Um, And there are a couple of factors that come into this. You know, what's top of mind for you? Uh, What's your availability bias? What have you been thinking about recently? What have you got heightened awareness uh, awareness of? So for example, if, uh, if you've been having back pain and you see an ad for back pain, instantly your brain is going to latch onto that information, right? Because this is top of your mind. You're already thinking about it. And as a result, that ad's going to be much more effective targeted to you versus someone who's not currently experiencing back pain. And marketers know this too because they look at perhaps what might be top of mind for you, um, what might be top of mind for their, their consumer segment, their audience, and they use that in their marketing. So those are the first two. I love that, mate. That though, though, that distinction between those first two, though, right? Which is like answering question: Is this relevant to me? But is this relevant to me now? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting distinction, which is marketing is always best when it's in response to you know a, a recent event, as you said, that availability bias. And I can imagine the emotion that comes with that mm. as well. Well, absolutely, right. And then the the second component is, I mean, the, sorry, third factor here is looking at emotional credibility of a message. So it's how much do you trust the information? What kind of a unity can you see? How much uh, does the information relate to other people? Or can you see other people around you um, 
who believe in the same information. And there's also the mere exposure effect that comes with this. Then the last couple to, to round them out are psychological levers. So we'll probably cover this a little bit later on, but things like scarcity, things like uh, unity herd bias, the bandwagon effect, you know, John from your area just bought this <laughs> or urgency, you know, this is uh this sale is going to run out in two hours. So all these psychological levers that uh, make their way into the way um, products are marketed to us to, to persuade us to take action. Um, the last two just quickly are emotionally stimulating content. So Harvard Business School professor Geralt Zoffman uh, estimates that about <laughs> nine. A oh, great name, right? Great name. He estimates that about 95% of uh, purchase decision-making takes place in the subconscious mind, subcortically. So that is below the level of thinking. And that revolves uh, around a whole bunch of uh, processes I'm going to talk about just in a little bit. And then the last, uh, last factor to look at is what I call imagination. But if you look in the research, it's um, called self-value integration theory or reward prediction um, theory coupled with decision-making. And what it means is like how well can you imagine using this product and then imagine the situation where the product product is helping you. So it's a bit of a long list of factors, but all these things come into play uh, into why we why we take action. Because when all these things are kind of in alignment with you, uh, it's much more likely to compel you to take action. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in in the next section. But it's always good to give examples, right? Absolutely. And on that point, like you you may raise a really good point in terms of probability, right? Which is like, it's not that you have to satisfy all these factors, but getting these factors right is all about increasing the chances that a person will buy. So being aware of these things becomes really, really important. I think that dovetails so nicely into this study that, that I found at Emory University. Seems to be one of the more preeminent um, universities in terms of neuro um, neuromarketing and consumer neuroscience. But mate, this is fascinating. So basically what they did is they got a group of participants and they didn't tell them about Coca-Cola or Pepsi, but those were the different drinks that were on offer. And they got them to just drink it first without knowing which brand it was. But when subjects were able to see the brand, their limbic structures, areas associated with emotion and memory showed enhanced activity. And it was particularly pronounced for Coca-Cola, which I found really, really interesting. I.e., Basically, when they drank and they knew they were drinking Coca-Cola, it was more rewarding than the taste itself. And what is also really interesting is when you damage that area, it's been shown that people are more likely to be influenced by a misleading advertisement, and that is the ventromedial PFC. And I think I just find this one really fascinating simply because it shows that brand can alter our perception of the quality of something, which is you know part and parcel of what marketing is all about. Yeah, well, super interesting study. And speaking of interesting studies, I know we're going to cover a little bit more, uh, a couple more next week. But it's so fascinating to hear that because there's another study I'm thinking of in particular where they looked at activation of the um, medial prefrontal cortex while watching certain ads. And they could almost directly correlate people who's part of medial prefrontal cortex, which evaluates a lot of this uh, value-based decision-making. When that was active, it was more likely the ad would have an effect on their behavior um, down the line. So, so plenty of all these uh, all these studies stuff. though they're just yeah. fascinating because it's it's nuts to think that we've only really generated the capability to do this over the past twenty years and it's you know heading in even a more interesting direction because in the reality is you can't like get you know every single person hooked up to an EEG or an fMRI to measure everything that's going on real time so there is still some prediction and forecasting that's required. Oh yeah, and a lot of these studies are done. Uh, the caveat with small sample sizes or minimal groups, not across section of the entire of society. But coming back to that idea of you know why we buy things we don't, mm. I think it's a 
It's a really important question because we've a all trimmer. done it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a trimmer. A product you saw in an Instagram ad and you just decided, oh, yellow, I'm going to buy it. I'm just going to click through or whatever it is. Why do we buy things we don't want? And the really simple answer from neuroscience is that because we feel we should in the moment. Mm. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, right? That seems like a really a simple statement to make. But effectively, why we buy things we don't want or why we regret later on is because we're under a state of heightened emotional arousal, which leads to this fast decision-making processing. System one is Daniel Kahneman we're talking here, but I'm just going to say it's subconscious, so it's under that level of thinking, um, which is based off many biases and heuristics and emotional processing and often doesn't take into the full um, the full picture of what that product would mean or that purchase would mean down the track. So I was just going to give you a really quick outline of what this buying experience would look like in the brain, brain, not the pain, the brain, um, because I think it helps people realize, okay, this is what's actually happening and this is what's causing me to, to take these actions. Like it. So what is the process? What does it look like? So if we look at the process, let's start from, you know, ad or exposure. Uh, input. We'll call it input because this could also be, you know, a web page or what have you. First thing is we see this, and let's take for example skincare. So first thing is we see this ad for patchy skin for this skincare product. Uh, in our brain, your first step is the attention filtering. So once the sensory information's come in through our eyes, through our ears, um, our brain will now look to filter that information to see what is important, what importance it has in the reticular activating system or your hypothalamus. So if you've got patchy skin and you've noticed it, it's top of mind, this ad's going to grab your attention, especially because if it's about skin, it's probably going to be emotional, which leads to our next next point in the brain. So from attention to prediction processing. So there's parts of your brain, the basal ganglia, the nucleus accumbent, and the other reward circuitry, which effectively helps you imagine without realizing a future state of what it would be like if you use this product, of what it'd be like if your skin was really, really smooth and no longer patchy and just even and consistent. There's this reward prediction processing that happens. As a result of that processing, you move to stage three, which is this emotional processing, which happens in your amygdala and a whole bunch of the related um, basal amygdala, amygdala circuits where you start to feel something. You feel excited or a little bit elated. You have a bit of a rush and neuromodulators begin flooding, flooding your brain and uh, excitatory or inhibitory neuromodulators make you feel a certain way, dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, endorphins. As a result, that signal that's been all been happening under your level of consciousness, not even you realizing it, is then sent to your conscious brain, your prefrontal cortex and other related cortices. And it now says, you want to do this. I want to take action. And you haven't even thought this yet. It's like, you, I want to buy this skincare product. So then your conscious brain goes through a process of kind of backwards rationalizing or justifying where you say, oh, look, it's on sale. So you buy. And the crazy thing is, if you look at that process, 95% of it as uh, this neuroscientist from Harvard Business School, Professor Gerald Zeldman says, 95% of that's happening before you're even thinking about it. So when we buy things we don't want, what's actually happening is we're getting excited uh, from a subconscious processing level and then that's coming up and flying on and then we click buy. Oh, mate, that is such a good rundown. I think like what I find fascinating is like how complex that is, one, but how quickly it happens, right? Like this, this is all going on, right? A couple, couple seconds. seconds, right? It's in the moment itself. Mm. And I think what... Sorry. 
Not even a couple of seconds, like a millisecond. What is free will? I'm kidding. Now, <laughs> the key thing that I sort of take from that as well, though, is like the importance you you sort of said about emotion, right? Which is like emotion is so important in terms of like mm-hmm. the memory formation and it links really well with branding, right? A memorable brand, brand is actually an emotional brand, right? And I think that is a, a really interesting point as you, you dive into it. Absolutely. And to kind of round that point out about emotion and emotional arousal impacting our buying decisions, um, crazy example right here. So there's neuroscientists from a company backed by Will Smith. Will Smith. Switch. There's neuroscientists. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? um, there's neuroscience. They spent five years to create an algorithm to help people, to help uh, media companies be more persuasive. Spent five years with various fMRI studies, with various EEG studies, various different media, and the neuroscientists identified one key thing, one key thing in all their studies, and the CEO, Spencer Gerrill, came out and said the first and the most prominent thing was emotional intensity. That was the most persuasive thing in the world, emotional intensity. So emotion is everything. Absolutely. When it comes to persuasion. I love it. And I think that then is a really beautiful segue into the brain tool sections of today where we're going to show you four practical brain tools to protect yourself from some of the tools that marketers use to get you buying. Let's do it. Let's protect those wallets and brains. And welcome back to the brain tools section of today's podcast. And as we always do, Sam, really important to provide a little bit of context because mm. while we've outlined, obviously, uh, that, you know, there's a lot going on in the neuromarketing space, I think the key thing we want everyone to take away from this is that there are methods that marketers are going to use that is going to encourage you to buy a product irrespective of how good or not it actually is. And the aim of the game here is to try and fight that artificial demand, right? It is not saying that marketing is bad, right? A lot of products in the world make your life better. For example, the computer you might have right now means you can type faster, right? Provides value to your life generally by saving you time. But what something that we do want to be mindful of is you know, fueling consumerism for people that are in debt, so to speak, right? Because that is a bit of an ethical concern. Mm, And so the people that normally end up buying the products don't actually need it. But again, it's talking about that idea of inserting need as well. And so the brain tools we go through today are all about giving you an understanding as to what is going on and therefore giving you some ways to engage, as Sam said, system two, not system one, that conscious, rational thought as well. If there's anything you want to add, Sam. I think that covers it entirely. It's really just about giving people some tools to help uh, counteract the tactics based on neuroscience that marketers use. Um, So really excited to share them. Love it. Well, we start with brain tool number one, if I can take the lead on this one, which is be a shepherd, not a sheep. Be a wolf. Be a wolf. Be a wolf. Wolf back. Now, this basically (laughs) one of the things that we have spoken about previously on uh, on previous episodes is that we are tribal in nature, right? Humans are. We want to belong to a group, right? That whole idea of herd mentality. And if the majority of the group do something, then we are more likely to do it. And this is something that's called social proof, or as Sam articulated before, herd bias. A really good example of this uh, is an experiment where one person in public literally fixed their gaze to the sky and steadily more people became to do this until 70% of the people within that area started to do it. And it's the same thing as when you go to a restaurant. If there's a restaurant's got a line of 50 people or a line of two people, you're probably more likely to attribute quality to the one with 50 as opposed to the one with two. Now, 
the reason we bring this up is that this is really compelling, right? Think about the number of times you've got something from a company that said, we work with 300 clients or we work with really well-known clients, right? Mm, It's very easy to fall for the trap that the product is commensurate with the quality of the brands and people they associated with. And so I think it's a really important one to combat the idea of social proof because everyone uses it. Like I'm going to put my hand up right now. We've used it in our marketing at the education company that I run. And Sam, I'm sure you've done this as well. Everyone has. Social proof is kind of marketing 101. Absolutely. It's like literally the stock standard thing. Now, we don't realize, as Sam said, that a lot of this is subconscious. And so, as I said, be a shepherd, not a sheep. We don't want to fall prey to that. And so, I've got a very clear and easy thing that people can do. Instead of falling for that initial product that you've got there, compare products against other products. That's your main step, right? If you're going to buy something, make sure you at least get two or three data points in that as well and use that as a reference to evaluate how useful is this thing? Is it actually useful? Is it actually going to do what it says? Or you're doing it and buying it simply because other big brands and other big names have actually done it. Hence why there's ambassadors for every single thing in the world. And I think doing this in line with looking at the reviews becomes really important to understand what might be bad about this and what is actually good about this. And you're more likely to make a purchasing decision based on what is useful rather than what appears to be most useful. Now, I know, Sam, that's a lot there, but that is brain tool number one. Be a shepherd, not a sheep. Be a shepherd, not a sheep. So kind of effectively do some research, make some comparison, take some options. Don't just rely on what other people uh, are doing. Absolutely. Because look, you might make a good decision, but you're making a good de- good decision for bad reasons. Ooh, I like that because you're making a good decision for reasons that are not your own, which very counterintuitively leads into brain tool number two, my second brain tool, which is three-star reviews. Three-star reviews. Brain Mate, I'm two. peaked. Not one, one, not two, not five, three. Not, not one, not five, three-star reviews. And from a problem perspective, we, as we talked about in our episode, two episodes ago, episode 19 on biases, we use heuristics, which are these shortcuts to make decisions that cause us to have decision biases. So go listen to that episode if you want to understand a little bit more about those shortcuts in the brain. And the problem is marketers exploit these. As Kieran has mentioned, the herd bias or social proof, the bandwagon effect. Um, and there's a few more uh, as well. There's anchoring bias, availability bias, mere exposure effect, a whole multitude that are used by marketers. What this means is these brain shortcuts are taken advantage of uh, by people marketing products to us to help us make these quick processing decisions where we don't actually really think through our buying behavior. So the solution and implementation to counteract some of your own biases without going in too far of the details of understanding or being able to list all 160 plus cognitive biases yourself, really, because that's a lot. It's a lot to think about, right? A really easy way to avoid your own biases being wielded against you as weapons of manipulation uh, is to not trust your own opinion and instead read the middle reviews, the three-star reviews. Now, you're probably thinking, why three-star reviews? And here's the rationale. And this is the 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 brain science part of this is to not trust your own opinion and, and get an external opinion that's less biased than yours. But the three-star reviews, the rationale is because If you read one-star reviews, you're going to be looking at the terrible reviews, the worst possible reviews of that product, terrible experiences people have. And often you'll see vitriol and really, really aggressive language and hateful things thrown around. And if you read the five-star reviews, you get the optimal state people have with the product. But reality often lives somewhere in between. And what I've tended to notice in both my research, but in my own personal life too, 
is that reviews with three stars or the reviews in the middle will give you a really balanced perspective on the good and the bad of a product. They'll articulate both because there's something they didn't love about it and there's something they did love about it. So it's a, they're really a really great way to de-bias uh, your product decision, your, your buying decision-making process is to go have a look at a couple of these middle star reviews to see a really weighted perspective um, on why people did or didn't love a product. And align with this, be wary of organizations who have no middle road reviews. There's no such thing as a perfect product. And if they've got 300 five-star reviews, there might be a chance they're fake. Let's be real. There might be a chance there's 300 fake reviews. Bots. Absolutely. Just, just <laughs> Literally not, not possible. Not possible at all. It's, it's not possible. There's no way. So, you know, the, the brain tool, which is three-star reviews, is to de-bias your perspective and get out of your own head by reading some weighted and balanced reviews, and those happen to be the three-star reviews when you're going to make a purchasing decision. So ah, brain tool number two. I love it. And I think that that idea of finding the middle ground, right? Because we feel the tendency to go to the extremes. And I think one thing that you did mention, and we mentioned in previous episodes in the emotions series, so feel free to go back and look at that, is negative affect bias, right? Which is negativity bias, which is if you do look mm. at the spectrum, you're probably more likely to lean towards the negative, possibly, than the positive without thinking, hey, how many reviews have they done? How many one-star reviews are they compared to five, compared to three? And that's where our statistics fall down. So I love that. I've never done that before. And that is right in the arsenal, right in the toolkit to make sure <laughs> Put it away. Which is not a trimmer. Lock it up. <laughs> and if you do sell trimmers, uh, Kieran is looking for some more ads to be served to him. So uh, I'll give you his email address. Mate, you know happen, We're literally talking. I've mentioned trimmers like three times now and my phone's near oh, me. Yeah, Kieran's here right yeah, next to me. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. <laughs> Screenshot that and put that as the, uh, the, the image for this episode. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm sorry for everyone involved. But that does bring us to brain tool number three, Sam, which uh, I'm going to tell you right now. Are you ready? Go on, hit me up, right to number three. Oh, don't be scared of scarcity. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mic drop, thunderstorm, D- got it. Now, I think the, the big thing that we have looked at, again, is biases, right? And we have a tendency to desire things that are less available, right? It's a more scarce resource, so we assume it's more valuable. For example, right, um, I was just looking uh, to do a staycation in Singapore and I was looking at booking.com, right? And I went on there and it literally said, you got the timer of, you know, 20, 20 minutes going down, 19, 18, 17, and it says only two rooms left. And I'm sitting there being like, look, it's still impacting me. It's making me actually do stuff. But I'm like, you, you have heaps of rooms left. So you're all yeah. like, what are you talking about, right? Another example of this is like limited edition. We've only got 200. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Highly likely, you've got 50,000, right? And I think these are some heuristics that heightens that and leverages that fear of loss, right? Which pushes mm-hmm. us generally to act. I don't want to miss out. I'm going to get FOMO if I don't. And I think that's happened to me, Sam. I assume it's happened to you. Abs- well, it absolutely happens to me. And you know what? It makes me a little bit angry now that I'm on the other side of it, to be honest. Absolutely. And I think what we are speaking about consciously, right, in in counteracting, I suppose, these weapons of influence, so to speak, is being really conscious with how you evaluate a certain thing. So my solution to this is to write down, right, when you are evaluating and you're going through any sort of checkout service, always knowing that they are trying to get you to buy, right? But writing down, Mm. how will this make my life better, right? Create a scale of one to 10, right? If you are sitting there being like, it is a 10, right, then buy the thing right? Especially if you can justify it. But if it's a one, don't buy it. And I think this is the key thing, which is you don't want to buy something because you think you need it. Buy it because you actually do. And even if it's for pleasure, 
right? That's also fine, right? It's not saying all pleasurable purchases are bad purchases anyway, that video game, whatever it might be. But using a scale system gets you just evaluate very quickly, take that pause, and you're more likely to actually do it. And this, for what Sam said at the top of the show, is definitely for the people who are impulse buyers. As you are actually engaging your prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of your brain, you're taming those normal emotional reflexes that will make you do it. You'll slow down, you'll take a pause, you'll evaluate what's the best choice for you. And that is brain tool number three, don't be scared of scarcity. Ooh, great name for a brain tool too. And a great way to, to slow down um, uh, and to, to counteract some of that in the moment uh, decision-making affect. Bye-bye, infomercials. <laughs> <laughs> By now, we only have 10 left, or is it 1999 for the next week? Yeah, this is okay. such a 10. I just have to mention it very, very quickly. Do you remember ShamWow? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do I remember ShamWow? It's one of the most ridiculous I, products, but hey, people buy it. Hey, I wanted a ShamWow. I'm not going to lie. I wanted as a child. I wanted a ShamWow. Just one. Or the tape. There was that tape. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> So good. Fun, mate. You're going to round us off now. I've taken us off track. We're back on track, I promise. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's all good. It's all good. So that was a great brain tool. And going to finish up with what I think is probably my favorite brain tool when it comes to uh, being influenced by marketing. And that's brain tool number four, the 10-minute rule. Ooh, the 10-minute rule. So the problem, as we articulated before, is that we make these rash decisions when we're for lack of a better word, heated emotionally in the moment. And I want to say, think about all the, the dumb things you or I have said in the heat of an argument. Emotions running hot, hurt a couple of feelings. We've all done it. We've all been there. Um, and the same things happens when marketing impacts emotionally. Uh, we override our, our critical thinking. In fact, there's, there's even quite a bit of research on the effect of emotional arousal on intertemporal decision-making, in particular paper um, in the journal of Physiological Anthropology, where they had they showed conclusively showed that when people are more emotionally aroused, they make these increasingly impulsive decisions, um, both towards positive and negative. So, knowing that, knowing that when you're emotionally charged in that moment, you're more likely to make a decision based on instinct rather than utility, rather than usefulness. You're more likely to buy that shitty product you probably don't need because you feel like you need it. What is the solution? And it's really, really simple. Never buy anything on the spot, in that emotional moment. Instead, wait at least 10 minutes. When you see an ad, when you try on some clothing, spot something online, when you bookmark it or put that item back on the rack, wait 10 minutes and then come back. And the reason this works is because in that 10-minute period, all the neuromodulators, which have been impacting the way you feel and the, the way you're thinking and your likelihood to buy that product, subside all that activation and that emotionally charged experience kind of calms down. The, the fire, if you will, turns from a flick, from a massive roaring fire into a tiny little flame. So when you come back after 10 minutes, you are much more clear-headed and much more likely to evaluate the purchasing decision uh, as to whether or not it will have benefits to you and utility over your, your life and, and whether or not it's something you want to be buying. So it sounds really, really simple, but... Effectively, I want to like finish off with a quote to, to round out this brain tool, and it's from Dr. Tally Sharrett, which is that science has shown waiting just a couple of minutes before making a judgment or making a decision reduces the likelihood they'll be based solely on instinct. And just like with a judgment, waiting 10 minutes and using the 10-minute rule before actually committing to a purchase will reduce the impact 
uh, of emotions on you and perhaps reduce the amount of times you buy something that you end up later regretting with buyer's remorse. So that's it. The 10 minute rule. Brain tool number four. I love it. And I think as we go through all these brain tools, it's sort of clicking. Like, as you said, it's all about taking a pause, right? It's like our brain is this prediction machine that we continually talk about, particularly predicting rewards. And the reward is normally not the reward that we necessarily need, but it's what our brain wants at any given time, right? And I think creating that, severing that connection, so to speak, through that pause, through the 10-minute rule, uh, I love it. I think uh, we'd be a lot better off for it and no more buyer's remorse. Maybe not. Yeah. Like, like you said, it's all about disrupting that subconscious processing that we don't understand or don't know is having such a massive impact on us. Um, and as Shane Parrish from um, Farnham Street said, one of his famous favorite mental models is that he always waits 20 minutes before making a decision on anything. He never makes it in the moment because he, he's really cognizant of just how much this impacts you. And the same thing goes with your buying behaviors. Whew. That so. is so, so good. Well, let's get to the top. Let's summarize this. Let's go back. Brain let's tool number one, be a shepherd, not a sheep. There is the phenomena of the herd bias, social proof, where we are more likely to do what the majority of people actually end up doing. And people and companies do this through big numbers and brands that they work with. But the reality is that doesn't necessarily tell you how good or how useful a product is. So make sure when you are purchasing something, you have at least another product to compare the product you're interested in buying to. That means you are more likely to make a purchasing decision based on what is useful and what is best rather than what you are thinking and put forward to be the best. So that's brain tool number one. Be a shepherd, not a sheep. Love it. Brain tool number two is the three-star reviews. Be weary that you are biased in your decision-making and your biases are probably going to be used against you by marketers trying to get you to buy things. So rather than relying on your own bias, get out your head, go have a look at some three-star reviews, not the extreme five-star reviews, not the extreme one-star reviews, but the ones in the middle that offer a balanced perspective and use those to help provide counter evidence that uh, mitigate the impact of your biases on your decision-making patterns so you don't end up buying something that you later later regret. So brain tool number two, three-star reviews. Love it. And that beeline's nicely into brain tool number three, don't be scared of scarcity. Remember, we have a tendency to desire things that are less available, a la limited edition. We care more about 200 t-shirts on offer as opposed to unlimited t-shirts on offer. And we want to make sure that we don't fall prey to this fear of loss or this scarcity. So how do you do it? You need to engage your conscious processes, your prefrontal cortex, write down how will this make my life better, scale of one to 10. If it is even above an eight, purchase it, buy it. If it's below that, then don't actually do it because it's probably not something that you actually want. It's something that you've been made to want. So as I said, slow down and this will help you massively avoid scarcity buy. So brain tool number three, don't be scared of scarcity. Oh, great. And talking about slowing down comes to brain tool number four, which is the 10 minute rule. Before you buy anything, even as excited as you may be in that moment in the store on the, uh, you know, on the website, just wait 10 minutes, come back 10 minutes later, let those emotions subside, let those neuromodulators succeed, uh, and then make that decision whether or not you want to buy it. Chances are highly likely that you turn around and go, oh, actually, you know what? I probably don't need that. So break to number four, the 10 minute rule. And that's us done for the week. I love Um, it. And then next week as well. This is, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot, there's a lot in here. Um, and a lot of utility as well. And especially next week, we'll be talking more from a marketer's side of things, how you can make your marketing brain engaging. So less, we're not talking manipulation. We're not talking unethical persuasion. We're talking about things that make your marketing engaging um, to people. But 
before we do do that, 80-20 this week, what you got? Talk to me. Going to quote the great man Warren Buffett. He says, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Make sure that you are buying things that are useful to improve your quality of life. If that's saving you time, giving you pleasurable emotion, whatever it might be, that means you're making a decision that is better for you. And that is mm. And yours. So, so true and yet so hard to do. Uh, my 80-20 is marketers try to make you feel rather than think. So you buy rather than evaluate. Reduce manipulation by reducing emotion in the equation. Slow down. Let yourself calm down before you buy something. I love it. Sam, what an episode. What a cracker. So that was episode 21. Episode 22 next week will be applied neuromarketing and this neuroscience marketing from more of a business perspective or personal brand perspective. We're going to be talking about how you can make your marketing brain engaging or brain friendly, um, which I'm really, really excited about because I've done a lot uh, in my own life and I know Kieran knows a little bit about it as well. If you are loving the podcast, please subscribe or follow us on Apple, Podbean, or Spotify so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Or if you really, really want to support the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It's always uh, much appreciated. And you can follow us on Instagram or on LinkedIn, Praying Tools Podcast, to keep up with the journey and and watch us grow. Otherwise, that's all from us this week. Look forward to to next week to talk more neuroscience uh, and marketing and your brain. Bye from me. Bye for now.